Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you, James, for that uh, poem. That was uh, amazing, and we are so blessed to have uh, James uh, be a part of this body for a number of years to, to share that wonderful gift that God has given him. Soli Deo Gloria. Well, we're going to be in 2 Timothy once again, chapter 3. Uh, But before we get into the text, uh, I ask that you join me in a word of prayer. Lord, you are holy. Heidi prayed it, and I want to begin our time now confessing your holiness. Lord, you are pure, and you are spotless. In you, there is no darkness. As as I have had a chance this week to reflect upon your word in this challenging portion of scripture that is before us today, I'm reminded of my sin. And if there are others here today who feel as I do, let my words and the meditations of my heart be theirs as well. I'm well aware of the impurity that exists within me and how my acts of defiance are highly offensive to you. I've gotten comfortable with things you hate. Help me to see sin as you see it in all its depravity. Remind me how contradictory it is for me to say that I love you and others, but then think, say, and do things that go against your commandments. Please realign my desires Renew my mind and revive my love for you over and against the love I have for myself as seen through my selfish ways. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy that you've shown me. And may your grace be at the forefront of my mind and quick on my tongue to tell anyone who will listen about your amazing love and your amazing grace demonstrated to me, a sinner. And I ask that you use me today to preach your word. Use me despite me. Give us all ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus, the sinless Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to look at the first nine verses. If you would, please stand as we're going to hear from the Lord here. Reading from the English Standard Version, Word of God says this, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households 
and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. The word of God, you may be seated. Thank you. Verse 1 says, Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. So when, when are these last days that Paul speaks of? He says they will come when. And Christians today will say, you know, we might be living in the last days right now. And I think we could take out that word might and insert in its place the word are. We are, biblically speaking, living in the last days right now. Book of Hebrews, if you were to open up Hebrews, the very first words you read there say this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. In other words, in the past, in the Old Testament, God spoke through various prophets. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, but now, uh, upon the first coming of Christ, he has spoken through his son. So the last days have already begun, and they will continue on, and they began with the incarnation of Christ. And so when Paul says they will come, he's letting Timothy know, like now, in the immediate future, they were in the last days in Ephesus when Timothy pastored back in the first century. And we are in the last days today as we endure these last days in the 21st century, and it will remain this way until the second coming of Christ. And so these last days are filled with, as the text says, times of difficulty. Why? He says, it's people, people. He describes them in verses two through four. And we're going to work our way through that list. We're going to hit every single one of those because the word of God is deserving of such treatment. But I want to I come back to, I want to jump ahead a little bit right now to verse five because Paul, he, he summarizes these folks. He says, these people have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. Avoid such people. And I think we might have a tendency to say, yeah, you know what? As I read through that, that list that I just read to you and Heidi went through it as well, yeah, those are, those, they must be some wicked atheists. They, they must be just these horrible unbelievers outside the church. Not so. Not so. They appear, operative word there, they appear to be godly. These are professing believers within the church. And Paul is saying, avoid them. Avoid them. Because they, they creep into households. Some translations use the word, they worm their way in. Creeping, 
worming, uh, kind of this you know, notion of slithering in like a serpent. I don't think there's any accident that Paul uses this type of language. And they, they worm their way into households to do what? Capture weak women, is what the text says. Now, Paul's not saying here all women are weak. we got to understand this in its cultural context. See, in the first century there in the, in the church in Ephesus, women were not afforded the opportunities that many men were for formal religious training. And, and their home, you know, the husband's out working, and they became these vulnerable targets because it, it appears that they had an eagerness to learn. But if you have an eagerness to learn and you're willing to take in things, but you don't have the, the grounding or the training there, you're, you're highly susceptible to false teaching. And these people capitalized on that. In verse 8, Paul compares these guys, these, these wolves in sheep's clothing, to a, a couple of guys named Janus and Jambres who opposed Moses. And you might be reading that and thinking, you know, I... I read the Pentateuch. I, I read all of Exodus numerous times. I don't recall hearing of these guys. Well, let me put you at ease a little bit. Your, your memory's not failing you. I mean, your memory might be failing you, but not in this case. <laughs> They're not mentioned in the entire Bible except for here in 2 Timothy. Uh, the way this goes is this was an, an oral tradition. Sometime after uh, the, the text was written, they ascribed names to these, these guys, these uh, magicians of Pharaoh, and gave them the names Janus and Jambres. And they were in Pharaoh's court uh, counterfeiting many of the miraculous signs that Aaron and Moses did. These guys are producing false signs, false wonders, false miracles, and Paul's point here is, these guys, they were imposters. And if you read through the narrative there in Exodus, they get exposed. And just like them, these false teachers, these false believers here in 2 Timothy, likewise, won't get very far. Their, their folly will be exposed and will be plain to all. And that right there is about the only glimmer of hope we see in this text. So let's jump back to verse 2. Verse 2, I think the thrust of this passage here is Paul saying, there are fakes, there are imposters inside the church, and his admonition is clear. There's only one imperative in this text, avoid those people. But now I, I think we may have a tendency, perhaps, to uh, make this all about them. You know, to look at them, kind of wag our finger at them and say, yeah, these are some bad people. Shame on them. And maybe utter, I thank you, Lord, for not making me like these people. Jesus spoke about this. I'm, I was reminded this week of the numerous occasions where Jesus spoke about certain individuals who focused on the sin of others to the neglect of their own sin. You know, the log and the speck, right? The, the time they came to him, they asked him about a tower that had fallen. They said, those 18 people who died, were they worse sinners than all the rest? Jesus doesn't even answer that question. He says, don't worry about them. What about you? What about you? Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. 
So yes, I, I, wanna, I want us to, to look at this list here as a lens you know, by which we can view dangerous people that we ought to avoid, but I also want to turn this lens into a mirror where we can look into the mirror and see some of these descriptors in our own selves. And I think you might be surprised as we begin to open them up and unpack them. So let's do that before we suit up as these proverbial fruit inspectors, you know, always worried about the other guy to the neglect of ourselves. Let's read the list again, verses two through four. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Quite a list, huh? And the first on the list is lovers of self. Now, I wonder how many, both outside the church and inside the church, that would say, you know what? That's not even a vice. That, that's actually a virtue that ought to be nourished and cultivated. After all, you can't love others unless you first love yourself. That gets said a lot. And I'm here to tell you that the Bible never once tells you to love yourself. It doesn't have to. We already do. This is a given. It's kind of the problem. We love ourselves a little too much. So it doesn't say love yourself. It will say deny yourself. It will say humble yourself. But people still may object. They say, you know, Mike, the, the second commandment says to love your neighbor as yourself. To which I say, amen. And Jesus is saying, love your neighbor. He's not telling you to love yourself. He's saying love them like you already love yourself. He doesn't have to tell us. He knows we already do. And I think this is the heart of the problem. I don't think it's any accident that Paul starts here with lovers of self. This is what kicks everything off. I, I thought of it this week as like a, a portal, okay? You, you walk up to this list, and, and it's a portal that you can walk through. And above it says self-love. And as soon as you step through the portal, the whole list opens up to you. They all just naturally follow. If I was teaching the kids downstairs, I, I can't help but bring kid illustrations. I spent many years in children's ministry. I would liken this to uh, Super Mario, right? He goes down a pipe, and a whole new realm is opened up. And this list right here is the sewer that you enter into via self-love. And we need to labor this. We do. Let's call it what it is. It's pride. That, that is what is going on here. And pride is the fertile ground from which sin grows. I, I created a graphic this week because I thought it might be helpful to you. Let me show it to you on the screen here. Uh, pride, if you notice, is at the bottom. That's the soil there where, where, where sin is, is really begins and it's cultivated. And notice the first or the, the middle letter there in the, the word pride. It's the letter I. 
And then in this, this fertile soil, sin is produced, and it grows, and it grows, and it becomes sin. And the middle letter in the word sin is also I. This is all about self. Whitney Houston, one of the greatest singers of our day, uh, I think one of the best voices I've ever heard in my worthless opinion. I mean, who cares what I think? But she could sing, right? One of her greatest hits, the greatest love of all. What is it, according to Ms. Houston? It is love of self. I found the greatest love of all inside of me. Learning to love yourself, it is the greatest love of all. Awesome singer, awful ideology. Speaking of singers, did you see this a, a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago now, very famous country singer named Miranda Lambert was giving a concert for her fans. Thousands of people there, big arena. She's singing uh, this song and she stops. She's like, shut it down, everybody. She stops in the middle of the song to call out some women in the front row. They were taking selfies of themselves, which I guess is redundant. That is what a selfie is. Uh, and, and Ms. Lambert did not like this too much. She said, and I quote, I'm going to stop right here for a sec. These girls are worried about their selfies, and you're not listening to the song. And it's blanking me off a little bit. I cleaned that up for church. And many were, were against this singer because this debate ensued. If you followed the story, there was, a, there was a fascinating debate on the heels of this event. And people were like, yeah, look at that egotistical celebrity singer. Got to all be about you. Everybody, hey, look at me. Look at me. I'm the performer. I'm the star of the show. And how egotistical of her is what people would say. But then the other side... They're like, yeah, you know what? She's got a point. She's got a point because look at these women in the front row. They're not there to pay attention to the one with all the talent who's singing that you paid for to appreciate her voice. No, you're, you're turning your back on her and doing a, doing a selfie, and it's kind of insulting to her. How arrogant and egotistical of them. So no matter where you land in that whole debate, I think there's one thing that is abundantly obvious. What's at the center of it? Self. Self. Selfies. It's, it's got a, the name is it's embedded right in there. It's all about self. It smacks of self all the way around. And many were like, yeah, the whole thing, everybody's selfish in this whole thing, which should not shock us in these last days. So next we have lovers of money. And I want you to see how easy it is to go from loving self to loving money, right? No one, no one loves the green paper that, that we have in our wallets and our purses, right? Nobody's caressing $20 bills. I mean, if you are, I'm really concerned for you. It's, it's not the paper. It's what the paper can do for who? you. People are not like, I love money. I want to get as much money as I can because I just love to bless people. 
and be really generous and give it all away to those in need. That's not what's going on. People want to spend the money on themselves. And we covered this already. Money by itself is, is not bad. It's, it's really neutral. We're going to collect money later in this service here. In a few minutes, we will collect money, and that money will be used to buy Bibles and support uh, missionaries and you know, feed people and keep the lights on in here and control the temperature so we can gather together for worship. Money in itself is not inherently wrong. It's the love of money. We covered it in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving, you can hear it there, the craving that some have, and they've wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Next on the list, of course, proud. Proud. And we can add the one after it, the word arrogant. Some translations use uh, the word boastful. And this is something that we typically do with our tongues. James says, the tongue, it's a small member, but it boasts of great things. And none of us really are immune to this. I love my kids, but I got to tell you, my boy Nate, he can be kind of a boaster. I have his permission to share this with you. See, the backstory with Nate, and some of you know this, more than two years ago, he had brain surgery. He had epilepsy, and the brain surgery has cured him of his epilepsy. And he hasn't had a single seizure. Yeah, praise God. I think tomorrow... He's, we're in a weaning schedule for his last seizure med. He'll be off all his seizure meds tomorrow. Today's the last day for it. Yeah, amen. Indeed. Thank you. Uh, we still praise God every day. Every day. But before the surgery, there, were, uh, there, there, was, there was a price to pay for this surgery. And, and the, the medical team told us this price. They said, you know, he will lose the function of his left hand. He's going to have left side weakness, but he won't be able to use his left hand at all. Like, he he has no fine motor skills there. And we knew that going in. We told him. He agreed. Mom and I were like, yep, this is, is, you know, the the, the cost, I guess, uh, as you want to put it. But the problem is Nate loves video games, and he's only got the one hand. And I thought about it. There's another reason to praise God. We should praise him for all kinds of things. If you're a video gamer, if you're kind of a historian, I I go back to the Atari days. If you remember the Atari, yes, the Atari, right? The Atari was you had to hold the bottom of it and then the joystick and hit the button. There's no way he could do that if we were in the Atari era right now. Nintendo, two hands. Now, the Wii, you're just one-handed. The Nintendo Switch, you know, you can manipulate just with the one hand. And Nate is really good. He, he, he plays uh, Super Smash Brothers. We played with the Venture team, uh, Venture uh, crew here in this room. And he beats some of the Venture people. I, I won't name any names. Put you on blast. John Holmes. <clears throat> But Nate's really good, and we, and we try to encourage him. We, Mom and I are like, you know, Nate, you're really good. Well, Nate, because he has a tendency to boast, like the rest of us, he goes all Muhammad Ali on us. 
Yeah, that's right. I'm the greatest of all time. I'm a bad man. Nobody can beat me. I'm the goat, baby. I'm like, dude, easy, easy. He's back, man. I'm just, you know, we're trying to encourage the boy, and he zooms right past encouragement on the way to boasting. None of us are immune. He's just like the rest of us. We boast. And so Tara and I have to come along and be like, teach on humility and you know, be humble. Let, let others praise you, not you yourself, you know? I was in the kitchen eating tomatoes this, this week, and on the package of the tomatoes, it said that they were miraculously sweet. And I'm like, really? I mean, this is a good tomato, you know, these cherry tomatoes. But I was like, don't you think you're overstating it a little bit? You know, parting the Red Sea, water into wine, walking on water, and sweet tomatoes. Which one of these is not like the other? <laughs> but you know, with that tomato company, the marketing team gets together in some boardroom. Some dude chimes in with like, I know, let's say our tomatoes are miraculously sweet. And nobody checks this dude to be like, uh, no, that's a little over the top. They're all like, yeah, yeah, let's go. And it makes it to print because we're boasters. We're boasters. Let's keep going on the list since we're having so much fun with this. It's going to get really intense here, though. The word is abusive. Abusive. You can be verbally abusive, physically abusive, emotionally abusive, mentally abusive, sexually abusive, spiritually abusive. The list goes on. All of those are forms of abuse. And again, that abuse invades the church, and it should never be that way. And so the, the call here for any one of these on the list, and particularly here with a, abuse, if you are an abusive person, the, the command is to repent, and repent today, now. Because this is a good place for me to bring in this great quote from pastor and author Warren Wiersbe. Check this quote out. He says, In our universe, there is God, and there are people and things. We were made so that we should worship God, love people, and use things. However, if we worship ourselves, we will ignore God, love things, and use people. And that use can quickly turn to abuse. What a horrible inversion of the way we were made and how we ought to function, how we should function compared to how we do function. People are abusive. And according to this quote, where did it begin? Worshiping ourselves. That's where it starts. Disobedient to parents. Next on the list. This ought not surprise us, right? If you're all about self and you're going to, you know, just reject God's authority because you're going to do you, well, naturally, you're going to re reject all authority. And, and that includes the authority that God has established for children with their mom and dad, disobedient to parents. And we see this all the time. Just turn on the TV in movies, right? These TV shows that are made for kids, 
The kids are always the smart ones, right? The parents are the dimwits, especially dad. Dad is either absent or he's an imbecile, right? The, you watch, like, I, I have some experience watching Nickelodeon. Every show is pretty much the, sh- the same. There's scheming going on by the kids. They're, they're defiant to, the, to their parents. They're, they're outsmarting them. They're being very deceptive. The kid's the hero, right? He's the protagonist. The parents, they're the villains. They're the antagonist. And in some of these, like, movies where the, you know, the kid's the hero, he's got, like, a dog, and the dog is smarter than the dad. <laughs> and this is what's going on. And I, and I think it, we have to ask the question, if you have kids that are defiant and disobedient and disrespectful, could it be it's what they're watching on TV and in the movies? Is there a connection there? Just a question. Speaking of TV shows, that leads us to the next one on the list. The word is ungrateful. I was a big Simpsons fan. I used to record The Simpsons on my uh, VCR, my uh, VHS tape library. I used to rewatch my favorite episodes all the time. Never had a problem with the show as an unbeliever. I got saved. I started to, to be troubled by some of the, the things that I was watching and that I used to laugh at. And one scene comes to mind for me. The Simpsons are around the dinner table, and Homer turns to Bart, and he says, Bart, would you like to say grace? And Bart says, dear God, we paid for all of this stuff ourselves, so thanks for nothing. I was watching that as a kid, you know, That's some grade A ungratefulness, but more than that, that's blasphemous. That's blasphemous. And I would sit there and laugh at it. And that leads us right into the next word, unholy. Unholy. Unholy are people who don't consider anything sacred, like prayer, like praying to God before a meal, that God has given you the ability to go out, work a job, earn a paycheck, then take that paycheck and go to the grocery store, buy some groceries and put them on the table for your family. All that goes back to God. It doesn't happen without him. Every good and perfect gift comes down from him. And that includes what you're going to eat for lunch today and dinner and what you had for breakfast. See, and part of the definition of unholy Really, what unholy means is it means to be set apart. It means to be different. Unholy, you know, uh, is is you're just like everyone else, right? So if you console yourself with the fact that, yeah, this list here kind of defines me. First of all, let me just say this too. If If this list here is like marks our lives, it defines who we are, we have big problems. It sounds like you're continuing sin, And the Bible says you're of the devil, right? These, I think, are present. I'll just use myself. I think they're present within me. They they don't hopefully define me. If they do, I got to question whether I really know the Lord. So so as we kind of look at this, and, and, you know, some people will just say, yeah, this is a bad list, but this is the way of the world, and I'm kind of just like everybody else. That's not a good thing. The vast majority of people in our world are going to hell. 
And, and that's not my opinion. That's not, not on the strength of Mike Bongo. Who cares what I think? That's on the strength of Jesus' words here in Matthew chapter 7. How do you understand these words? Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter in it by, by it are many. Many. By contrast, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And how many of those people find it? There's only a few of them. I don't know how else to understand that. Verse 3. Heartless. Heartless. Many translations render this unloving. We live in such a cold, cruel, unloving world. I see it all the time. During the week, you know, Grace and I, we're, we're the, the, like the compassion team, so we handle most of the requests when people come in and they have needs. You know, they're hurting. They need some help. And, and Grace, would, I'm sure, amen what I'm about to tell you. There's people that come in, and often it's women, and, and I will sit down with, with someone and, um, you know, find out what the need is, see if we can help. But I'll make a little small talk with her first. You know, I'll say, like, hey, uh, I like your, you like your hairstyle, or that, that's a nice shirt. And they start crying. Why? No one ever says anything nice to them. One little compliment from me, and they lose it. It's because this world is so cold and cruel and unloving. And it ought not be that way in the church. We want to be a beacon of light to people when they come in. Like they, they, they didn't look down on me. They treated me with respect. They loved me. They cared for me. They served me. That's, that's the contrast there. Let me, let me speed up a little bit here. Unappeasable means you're unwilling to forgive. You're holding a grudge. You resist reconciliation. Now, think about it. You're a Christian. You say you're a Christian. You've been reconciled to God on the vertical level. You're resistant to reconcile with other people on the horizontal level. How does that work? How dare we have this spirit of unforgiveness within us? We're going to have conflict. It's inevitable. It's just going to be there. The question is, will you extend your hand, extend the olive branch, because there's a wedge between the two of you in this relationship and you can either just stay on either side of that wedge or you can pull the wedge out and say, let's mend our ways. Let's, let's, let's fix this. That's, that's, that's how God is. If you acknowledge your sin and you come to him and you say, my sin has separated me from you. I am an enemy of you. He, he doesn't stand back and say, no forgiveness for you. He he opens that door, and we need to be opening that on the horizontal level. We have no business refusing to reconcile. I said I was going to speed up. Let me go quicker. Slanderous. Slanderous. Those who speak ill of others. You're trying to damage people's reputation, often with flat-out lies, without self-control. Uh, this is an inability to deal with temptation. You just, you just give over to every impulse. You can't ever say no to anything. You show no restraint. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Brutal. 
meaning to be uncivilized, like an uncivilized barbarian. You're almost animalistic in your behavior. That's what it's getting at here with the word brutal. Next, it says not loving good. I'm going to come back to that one in a minute. Verse 4, treacherous. You're a betrayer. You're like the Jews who killed and stoned the prophets, or Judas who betrayed Christ, which, by the way, both of those parties, the, these religious Jews stoning and killing prophets, and Judas who betrayed Christ, they both had an appearance of godliness about them. Reckless. You're just not careful. You're speaking without thinking. Swollen with conceit. I just refer you back to the diatribe that I gave on uh, pride and self-love. And lastly, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. How much of this really can be chalked up to misguided love? You're just, you're not loving good. That's really what it comes down to. I said I'd come back to that. That's not loving good. You're not loving God and you're not loving good. In a word, sin. Sin. And apart from the God's, God's grace, this list is every one of us. If you can look at this list and say, you know, I can, I can honestly say that, that one there, you know, I, that, that, I, don't, I don't see that in my life. Praise God. Because it is the grace of God that you, by which you can say that. Because without divine intervention, we will love ourselves and love our sin straight to hell. Reminded this week of a story that I heard. I had to go look it up. I had to go down to our church library, get the confessions by uh, St. Augustine. Augustine, a uh, long time ago, like fourth century uh, theologian, author, he told a story as, as a kid. He, he's a kid, and he said he ran with some sketchy kids. They were, um, they were troublemakers. And as Augustine tells it, he had a neighbor who had a pear tree. And he and his buddies would, would climb the fence and go over into the neighbor's yard and steal pears off this man's tree. And I love the way Augustine tells the story. He's like, the pears didn't even look good. They didn't even look tasty. He's like, I don't even like pears. But I went over to do it, and he said he did it for the sheer joy of it. He wasn't even eating the pears. They said they were like whipping them at pigs and stuff. Like that's what they did with the pears. And I'll quote him exactly. He says, doing this pleased us all the more because it was forbidden. It was foul and I loved it. I have my own pear story. Mine involves pizza. When I was growing up, I ran with some sketchy friends. I myself was sketchy. I might have been the ringleader of our sketchiness. And, and I lived near a Sheridan Hotel. And my buddies and I, we would roam the halls of the Sheridan and uh, just looking for trouble, you know, just maybe 13, 14 years old. And what people would do is they would put like their, uh, their leftover room service food outside the door of the hotel room for the staff to come by and pick it up. And we would go through and we would kind of open, open it up and see what was in there. Not to eat it. Again, like the pears, not going to eat it. But I remember on multiple occasions, 
This is so shameful, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share it anyway. I would pick up a half-eaten slice of pizza, put it up against the wall, and smear it across the hallway. And I'm glad there was groaning. That's the right response. But here's my question to you. Maybe you're asking this of me. Why? Well, that is a very good question. But I'll tell you this. It's not hard to answer. I'll tell you why. I loved it. I loved it. I knew it was wrong. And that's what I loved about it. Now, let me, let me ask you this. How do you, how do you, how do you comprehend that without reaching the conclusion that at his core, Mike Bongo is an utterly sinful person. I mean, I don't know, I don't know how else you, how, how can you comprehend that? It makes no sense except to conclude the depravity that was within my heart. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. While I was yet still smearing pizza on the hallway walls of the Sheridan, Christ died for me. Amen. You think I'm not grateful for the grace of God in my life? You bet I am. And I could go on with many stories after 13, 14 years old, all the way up until I was 30 when I met the Lord. All the, you know, go from pizza smearing to pot smoking and drinking and sexual promiscuity and porn use and all of it. I could just go, we could, we could go through this. One, we don't have the time. Two, the shame would kill me. I would die up here. But I know it, and maybe you got your own pizza smearing story. Am I, am I the only one in here that's ever done something stupid like that? Right? I mean, don't, don't leave me hanging up here like, yeah, that's on you, Mike. <laughs> Halo around my head, sitting there in some blue chair. Come on now. Y'all know. I'm not the only one. Loving self, loving pleasure, not loving what is good. All, all with an appearance of godliness. I would do that on a Saturday night and be in church the next morning on Sunday with my nice collared shirt, my uncomfortable shoes, looking like Mr. Godly. But I knew what was going on. I deceived others, and truth be told, I was deceived myself. I thought somehow that, I don't know, Jesus just winks at that sort of thing vandalism and somebody having to come along and clean up my foolishness. And then God did not intervene. If he did not step in in 2004, I would have continued to live my life and stand before him on the day of judgment saying, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this? Didn't I do that? Wasn't I baptized? Didn't I go to church? I sang the songs. I, I prayed. And he will tell me, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. I was asked earlier this week, what, I, what passage in the Bible I find the most disturbing? It's that. Matthew 7. Read some Matthew 7 tonight for a sobering splash of cold water to the face. That haunts me. I don't want to hear those words. And I'll tell you this. I don't want any of you to hear those words. Anyone within the sound of my voice, this, that keeps me up at night. 
for the people of living water, my family, my neighbors, and myself. I'm going to finish strong to the end. And again, here, well done, good and faithful servant. Not that. Not that. So to conclude, what I want to do is what the Bible says to do. Periodically, we need to examine ourselves. Yeah, test yourself. Not against other people. Again, that ship is going down. You look great next to the next. Great, you're both perishing. That, that, does, that does you no good. You compare it to the word of God. And you test yourself. Unless, of course, you fail the test. So I created a little test this week. I, I call this the 5T test. It's five words. All begin with the letter T. You know, we love our alliteration around here. And they're just questions. You ask them to yourself, and you answer them to yourself. You don't write them down. You don't pass your papers forward. This is between you and the Lord. The first T is think. What do you think about the most? What dominates your thoughts? Are you thinking about yourself all the time? Are you thinking about God? Thinking about others? Or are you thinking about your job? your home, your car, your yard, your hobbies, your TV shows, whatever it is. What, what dominates your thoughts? Is it earthly things or is it things above? Next T, talk. What do you talk about? What, what is on your lips most of the time? Are you always talking about yourself? Are you talking about God? You talk about others? Talk about your job, your home, your yard, your car, your hobbies, whatever. What, what do you talk about the most? And I, I just, this was so convicting. That's why I had to lead with that prayer at the beginning. I've been so convicted. I do like to talk about myself. I know that. I even even prepare, can I just be honest with you guys? In preparing a sermon, I'm telling you stories about me eating tomatoes in the kitchen. Like, is, like, is it everything about you, Mike? You know what I mean? Like, these are things that I wrestle with. You know, is it too much me? And I have to ask, you know, and it, it's a good way to connect with people because, you know, you, you kind of vibe that way. And so we all do it, but sometimes I wonder, just like, are you just so in love with yourself? You know, and, and Jesus said, whatever's stored up within you, in your heart, not your organ, but your soul, whatever's within you, it's going to come out your mouth, whatever that is. And so if you rarely talk about God, how much of your heart does he really occupy? It's a good question. The third T, treasure. Treasure. What do you treasure? What do you value in this life? You know, what, what, what do you hold as most important? Right? Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So follow it. There, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. And then whatever, whatever's in your heart, that comes out your mouth. You follow that? Like, what are people treasuring? What are you treasuring? Is it, is it literally your bank account? Is it cash and coins and stocks and bonds and your investments and whatever? Are you a lover of God or are you a lover of money? What do you treasure? Fourth T, time. How do you spend your time? And I think this one answers itself. If you take the first three, right, what do you think about? What do you talk about and what do you treasure? That's how you're going to spend your time. You know, it, it kind of just, just look at your schedule and you can find out what you value 
and what is most important to you is how you spend your time. And the fifth T, the word treat. Treat. How do you treat others, including God? How do you treat God? Do you treat God as your all? You know, is it your all in all? Is your life? Or is he a part of your life? A small part of your life? Maybe this is the, your extent, you know, the treatment you have for God is I endured bongos preaching for 40 plus minutes. There you go, God. How do you treat him as the one who's worthy of all your praise, love, devotion, and commitment or something less than that? That's the vertical. And then how do you treat others? How do you treat others? Do you treat them as better than yourself as the scriptures teach? Or are you abusive and treacherous and reckless and brutal and all the whole litany? Good questions to ask yourself. This is heart check day. Heart check. So we go to the doctor, we get all these tests run. Why? We want to find out how we're doing physically. Do you ever open the word of God and run a few tests to see how you're doing spiritually? Today might be the day to do that. Let's close here with Hebrews chapter 3. These words, take care, brothers, and I would add sisters. Notice who's being addressed here, brothers and sisters. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Let's pray. Lord God, my prayer, Lord, is that we would understand that you take sin seriously. And sin has such a devastating effect on us, even as believers. It's deceitful and destructive, and it destroys everything in its path. May we be on guard against it. As your church, to be aware of those whose lives are marked by the sinful descriptors we looked at here today. And we would be careful to avoid them so that we are not influenced by them. Lord, I think I speak for all of us when I say we want to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. And what we think about, talk about, how we spend our time, what we value as our treasure, and how we treat you and others. Help us to look more and more like Jesus in each of those areas. And when we fall short, and we will, we praise you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you.